This week on the Road to Cinema podcast, from the Hulu original comedy series The Mindy Project, actress Beth Grant. With over 100 film credits, the veteran character actress shares her experiences working on such films as Jackie, starring the Oscar-nominated Natalie Portman, the action thriller Speed, starring Sandra Bullock and Keanu Reeves, and the film that changed the trajectory of her career, Rain Man, where she played opposite Tom Cruise and Dustin Hoffman. Beth shares how her career shifted after embracing the role she was casted in in Rain Man. We also discuss how actors and directors can positively work together on a set, how she was cast in the series' regular role on the Hulu original comedy series The Mindy Project, which is now in its fifth season, and some advice given to her by her friend Octavia Spencer. We'll also discuss her long friendship and collaboration with actor and filmmaker James Franco, and how it all began on an audition very early in James Franco's career. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, to read the Road to Cinema blog, and to watch our Road to Cinema YouTube series, please visit jogroadproductions.com and subscribe to Jog Road Productions on YouTube to see some of our video interviews with Don Cheadle, Greta Gerwig, actor Saul Rubinek discussing his work with Clint Eastwood on the film Unforgiven, and Moon Zappa discussing the new documentary film about her father, Frank Zappa. Follow us on Twitter, at Jog Road, Instagram, Jog Road Productions, like our Facebook page, Jog Road Productions, and don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes, and write us a nice review on the Road to Cinema podcast iTunes page. And now we join actress Beth Grant as she shares how the trajectory of her career shifted upon being casted in the 1988 Best Picture Oscar winner, Rain Man. I know Rain Man was kind of, that was your, you know, first kind of big Yeah, first big studio movie, yeah. So what was your process like when you entered into this area where you're with Tom Cruise, Dustin mm. Hoffman, two of the biggest movie stars at that time, oh, Barry Levinson. Unbelievable. Who was one of the top directors. I mean, was this, you know, like a crazy experience to be thrust Well, it was the most life-changing event of my life. I mean, in terms of career, uh, having a baby is a little more life-changing. But but as far as my career, that's what made all the difference was Rain Man. And it was a miracle. It was, um, funnily enough, I had done a play with my husband at the Amundsen. It was uh, Summer and Smoke with Christopher Reeve and Christine Lottie. And I played Mrs. Bassett with a big fat suit. And I would kind of be the comic relief. And I was... Very happy and grateful to have the job, but sort of miserable too because, you know, my husband was in the play and he was playing Christine Lottie's fiance, and here I come on stage talking about best deal day. I thought, oh my God, this it was character. A Tennessee Williams play, right? Yes. Yeah. Tennessee Williams. And um, I just, you know, accepting myself as a character actress was not an easy task for me. I mean, you know, little girls grow up wanting to be movie stars or. Broadway legends like Helen Hayes or Ingenues, you know, I wanted to be Joan Crawford or Marilyn Monroe or Sarah Bernhardt, Eleanor Dusa. Those are the, my, I thought of all these big iconic characters and then I find out, you know, I'm Thelma Ritter, which is nothing wrong with Thelma Ritter, but it wasn't what I dreamed of doing. And as I got older, I had a great acting teacher that really taught me to accept who I am. He said, why do you keep trying to be a Rolex watch when you're the salt of the earth? And I thought about that, and I thought, oh, gosh, I think I like being the salt of the earth. So it was a slow transition in acceptance of that. But once I accepted it, then I started working all the time. I haven't stopped in all these years since my first big 
job was 1986. And, but anyway, fast forward to 1988, um, I was up north at Big Sur and was very frustrated and sad that my career was going to be in fat suits with funny voices and wigs and, you know, at least that's the way it felt at the moment. And I had this sort of breakdown in the middle of the night. We were camping at Big Sur and I went up to the top of the hill and I'm yelling at the heavens and I said, you know, okay, fine, I'll be a character actress. We were also trying to get pregnant at the time. I said, or I'll have a baby, whatever you want really screaming at heaven and surrendering to my destiny, whatever it was going to be. And the next day we were hiking and we came upon the cabin where the founders of Big Sur had raised 12 children. And I mean, the cabin was small, like the size of a room. And I said, holy cow, this woman raised 12 children in this little cabin? And I looked at my husband and I said, you know, I don't think they've ever really done a pioneer woman. One of these days, I'm going to play a pioneer woman, and I'm going to do her like a mama bear and no makeup, and I'm going to be strong and tough. And that day, I promise you, we're driving down Pacific Coast Highway. We stop in Solving. I check my messages back in the day before cell phones. You had like an answering service. Yeah, answering service or a machine, and I think this was a machine. Yeah, it was a machine, and I called my machine, and my agent said, you got to come back to L.A. You have an audition for the new Dustin Hoffman movie playing a pioneer woman. And I was like, okay, here it is. And I went in with no makeup, looking strong, my hair, you know, loosely pulled back. I wore a house dress. I mean, I was just like, yeah. And I got there, and I passed Barry Levinson in the hallway going into the, do the test. Have you seen any scripts pages at this point? I had only seen, there was about to be a um, writer's strike. So they were very protective with that script, and I'd only seen... Three and a half pages. But I promise you, I read that three and a half pages, and I knew it was going to get Best Picture. Really? I knew it was going all the way. What popped out for you about... Well, it was the casting, first of all. Tom Cruise and Dustin Hoffman. As you say, they were the biggest stars there were back then. And the two of them together, they're so different. You know, it's that thing my acting teacher used to also talk about, Abbott and Costello. You know, you got to have the yin and the yang. Balancing out each other. Balancing out each other. And I said, oh, that's a perfect combination. And um, Barry Levinson, one of my favorite directors, because I had loved Diner. I was sort of obsessed with Diner and and Good Morning Vietnam. And, you know, my husband went to Juilliard with Robin Williams. And so we had been and we knew the guy that had written Good Morning Vietnam. So we were big fans of that movie and just but all the Baltimore movies. And I just had always wanted to work with him. And so Barry Levinson, Dustin Hoffman, Tom Cruise, and then the sides. It was just that little scene that I did, two scenes put together in one in about four pages or something. And But I saw the story in that scene. And later, after we were at the premiere, Barry Levinson said, you know, the whole movie's told in that scene. He said, it's my favorite scene. I don't know if it still is his favorite scene, but at that moment, because it tells the whole story of the brothers and the relationship and Tom's predicament with this brother and how he's going to navigate the world with him. And so I read that, and I knew it was going all the way. I really did. I didn't know I was going to get the part, but I knew that and this your was your audition, was it with just you and Barry Levinson? He wasn't even at the oh, audition. he wasn't at the audition. I just passed him in the hallway. Ah. But when I passed him in the hallway, he did a double take. And I knew that was a good sign. Yeah. I saw so you him. you had a facey, 
He had been looking for that oh, face, like, and yeah. I found out later they'd seen over 700 people. Wow. They'd seen people in Cincinnati. They thought they would get a local person because they wanted somebody that was really, had that Midwestern pioneer woman look. And so they'd seen Chicago, Cincinnati, people in Ohio, uh, Louisville, all those areas where they were shooting, hoping to find a local. But they hadn't, it's so funny because they come to Hollywood to get this raw <laughs> You know, pioneer yeah. woman face. The scene in the movie is it's like a house in the, the middle of nowhere. Middle of nowhere. Yeah, farmhouse. Tom Cruise and Dustin Hoffman approach there. Dustin Hoffman's throwing a fit. He has to watch Jeopardy. Yeah. And they approach this house and you answer the door. And yeah. You're and immediately I say, suspicious. We like to about. watch cartoons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Will that do? Yeah, I'm suspicious. And he then tries to con me. But then when he tells me the truth, which is also a part of the story that's important, mm -hmm. when Tom Cruise comes to the truth you know yeah. it's symbolic in that way too because the whole movie he's kind of like a wheeler dealer trying to mm -hmm. manipulate people to get the money from his brother and it was sort of him turning a little bit just being honest mm -hmm. like hey my brother is autistic he's going through this help me out help me out yeah. tell the truth and that really is like the big turning point before that the next scene i think is when you know, their relationship really culminates yeah, yeah they get closer the, and closer after yeah. that he surrenders to the truth so it's beautiful. And then I let him in because he <laughs> surrendered to the truth. And so, yeah. Was so that nerve-wracking being on the set that day? Like, Oh, I was just, were, uh, I, I wasn't in my, I had to work very hard to stay in my body. I remember doing mm -hmm. yoga incessantly in my hotel room. I was on hold because we were an interior and there were, we shot in Oklahoma right outside yeah. of Oklahoma City in Hinton, Oklahoma. And um, so I was the cover set. And so I had to get there early, and I, every day I'd be waiting to see if I was going to call, if I was going to shoot, if I was going to shoot. And I visited the set a couple of times, but then I'd just go, I would run, I would go, there was a track across the street from the hotel, and I would go jogging, and I would do yoga, and I would go swimming, and just trying to stay in my body, just trying to be present, and... Uh, tell the truth and keep it simple. And I remember going to the makeup trailer and telling the guy that I didn't want any makeup. I said, Jack Nicholson doesn't use any. So, and so he said, okay. He let me not have any makeup. And um, that was a big victory. And I just did my hair in a ponytail, I, just the way I'd seen her. And, um, oh, there was another part of the story that I had done this meditation, visualization, when I was trying to accept myself as a character actress. And I had gone and side myself and said take me to the energy that's blocking me from accepting myself as a character actress and I went to this white clapboard house out in the country and this woman came to the door and it was me and she was in a ponytail and a house dress and she said uh -huh. come in we've been waiting for you and of course it was me waiting for me and so Fast forward to me doing the movie, and we're in a white house out in the country, and I'm opening the door for Tom Cruise, and I'm opening the door, and I've got on a house dress, and my hair's in a ponytail. So there's, no, I mean, there's more to this life than we'll ever really understand. In fact, that meditation's so powerful, I hardly ever do it because it scares me to death because it's it works. I mean, it's just amazing. But, yeah, so it was uh, the audition. I remember the casting director said, they put me on tape, and he said, don't be afraid to be strong. And I thought, oh, you have no idea. I'm just, because I was ready after, you know, the meditation yeah. and after being at Big Sur. And uh, I didn't think I would get it particularly. I thought, well, I'm good, but I'm going to be authentic. And I got it within 24 hours. Wow. And then later, one of the casting directors said, you know, we saw over 700 people for that role. So what an honor. What a way to break into the business. I got to Oklahoma. 
I managed to stay in my body, and they couldn't have been nicer to me. Tom Cruise and Dustin Hoffman were just great, and they'd been shooting for about three weeks, mm. and it had finally clicked in Dustin. He, I, I, in fact, I was there for the scene, you know, when they go to the phone booth? Oh, yeah, yeah. And he's like, he farts in the phone yeah, booth or something. That's it. Yeah, that's <laughs> Yeah. And uh, it's that Dustin clicked into character, and he found it. And I remember that day he came up to me, and he was doing his little... Uh, body motion, and he said uh, something to me. Oh, I was reading a book, a, a, a spiritual book called Money is My Friend, and he goes, Money is my friend, money is my friend, money is my friend. And I was so embarrassed because it seems like I'm trying, it's a get rich uh, quick scheme, which is not what it is at all. It's all about gratitude and love. It's not anything like that, but that's what he started doing. But it was that day that he later said was the day that it really clicked in. In fact, they went back and did some reshoots of some of the stuff in Cincinnati because he didn't feel like he quite had him until that day. And he was looking at the pictures of the guy and listening to audio tapes of him. He's such a great actor. He was really trying to, you know, be be in character, really try to find the character all through the process. Absolutely. And he and Tom were just two peas in a pod. They were so close. And... Um, I didn't know any better, so I went to dailies. You know, they posted on the call sheet where the dailies were, so I just went in and nobody kicked me out. So <laughs> I got to watch the dailies every day, and I got to hear the interaction with Tom and Barry. And uh, I had known some people at Hollywood Reporter and called and asked me for a scoop. And wow. so I asked Barry, I said, is there anything? He said, tell them we're on time and under budget. And so I was able to give a scoop to the Hollywood Reporter, and then they wrote about me. And the funny thing that happened to me was we were supposed to have, I was supposed to have three kids, but then they found this family that had actually eight kids, and so they hired six of them. They couldn't right. use the oldest one, and they couldn't use the youngest one because she was a baby, but they hired the six middle kids. And fast forward again, we fast forwarded three times in this conversation already. Uh, Summer before last, I shot two movies in Oklahoma, and I had a reunion with that family. Oh, wow. And I went back to the farmhouse. So all those, that big group of kids in that scene, now they're... And they're still oh, close, yeah. they, and they've done very... They took their money that they made from Rain Man, because the residuals were great. It was back in the day when you actually made big residuals. And they invested their money. They have their own business. They've all built houses together in the same community. And they have an airplane. That's incredible. They got residuals even from that yeah. little scene. Well, that. and here's what they told me, which I did not remember. They said, I came over and I whispered to them, be sure and say something when the camera's rolling and then uh, you'll get residuals. Which I don't remember saying that. And I don't even know how I knew that because this was my first big movie. But somehow I knew it. And so they were too shy, most of them, but three of them made sure they said something. Wow. And darn if they didn't get residuals, so they made a lot of money. And uh, <laughs> and they invested it well, and they'd have a beautiful family. And it was so great, the news came out. In fact, if you Google it, you can see on YouTube, it's somewhere on the internet. They came out to the house, and I got to see them all. It was beautiful. Wow. <laughs> Just amazing day. It was an amazing day. So I think what's great about Barry Levinson is he likes to cast the real people or people he thinks are, are the part, you know, as yeah. opposed to sort of putting people in a lot of theatrics or making them out to be something else. Yeah. Like, I think even in that movie, like, he cast, like, the unit production manager as, like, yeah. uh, the therapist. Or, yeah. And you know, he was, he played the, he, I think he was the therapist. Yeah, Barry Levinson like, was the yeah, therapist. Exactly, yeah, And yeah. what did, uh, Moiler was his name, right? The producer. What did he oh, do? Oh, uh, Gerald. Was uh, he the, uh, Gerald Moeller. Yeah, yeah. He was a doctor, maybe? Yeah, I think back in, like, the uh, the facility. The that, small town. Yeah, Raymond was living in. Yeah. yeah. And he used a lot of, and, um, yeah. So that's the way he works, and he was great. Barry was great in the movie, and I remember the night of the premiere too. He said to us, "I said, oh, Barry is so great." He said, 
what is it though? I said, it's a road <laughs> picture. It's a buddy picture. It's brothers on the road, you know? And he goes, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he just, he's a real artist, you know? He, was, he wasn't judging his art. He was just creating it. Yeah, no, it's great how that art. movie worked. You know, just, it's, you know, the strength of those two performances carried yeah. through. Incredible. You know, I saw Hans Zimmer at an Oscar party during the season this year, and um, oh my gosh, it was so great. I hadn't seen him in many, many years, and I said, I don't know if you remember me, Beth Grant, we both did Rain Man, and it was both of our first big movies. Uh, and the way Barry found him, he, his wife had given him a CD, and he loved the music, and he was in London opening another movie, and he went to his apartment, and Hans was just a little sort of local musician. I didn't realize that was one of Hans Zimmer's first uh, First films. big movie, really? yeah. Wow. And Barry, he opened the door, and Barry Levinson's standing at his front door, <laughs> and he said, Hi, I'm Barry Levinson, and he said, wondering if you're interested in doing a film. And he said, uh, yeah, come on in. <laughs> Isn't that great? We had a nice reunion. It yeah, was no, I love the score of that film. He worked out, his career worked out okay, too. Yeah, yeah, he's doing all right. I was curious, you know, figuring out, you know, the types of roles that you were suited for or, you know, sort of embracing who you were as a person. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you think that's really the key for actors to really yeah. finding who they are and then I going do. after those parts as, as opposed to what you were saying before, you know, trying to sort of carve yourself out to be someone you're not or, you know, to be sort of a, something else, if that makes sense? Very much so. Yeah. I think when you accept your casting, you know, it can work conversely. Like mine was to surrender to being character actress, but Tom Selleck was in my class. And Tom is a very sensitive guy, and he liked doing sensitive scenes. And he liked doing it. And my teacher said, Tom, you're six <laughs> foot four. You're handsome. You're gorgeous. You're a leading man. you got to just do it. And he has resistance to it because he wanted to be a real actor. He is a real actor. And finally he accepted it. And he came to class and he says, well, I got good news and bad news. Good news is I'm the lead in a new series called Magnum P.I. Bad news is it conflicts with um, Indiana Jones. And he had been offered Indiana Jones, but he'd already accepted the pilot. But interesting that he accepted his casting and then those two huge jobs came his way. Now, would Indiana Jones have been Indiana Jones with him instead of Harrison Ford? Maybe not. Yeah. But definitely Magnum P.I. was a huge, huge hit and made his career. And Later, when he did Three Men and a Baby and he was one of the producers, he had a sensitive scene where he got to cry. <laughs> <laughs> and it was great. And it was a great <laughs> scene because he really is a sensitive guy. So, But, yeah, it's you, my daughter's six feet tall, and she went to Juilliard, and she's done Shakespeare, and it... it Juilliard, they cast her as King Lear. They cast her as Macbeth, not Lady Macbeth, Macbeth. And so then she's reprised that. She is now the Klingon commander on the new Star Trek series, accepting her casting. And it was hard for her. You know, she's a girl. She wants to play Alma in Summer and Smoke. She wants to play Blanche. She, all us girls, we want to do these roles. Yeah. And, uh, but she accepted her casting, and she lands in Star Trek. So there you go. Yeah, I think I, like I see that in auditions sometimes too. It's like when people are more trying to be who they are within the part, as opposed to sort of pushing themselves outside of that barrier. They're like they're more comfortable and mm -hmm. they're sort of more adept within to, your wheelhouse. Yeah, exactly. But you say a very. I like the way you say that within the part. Yeah. Because I still am a transformative actress. I mean, I still like to completely give myself over to the role outwardly as well as inwardly. Now, some actors are great actors, but they basically sort of always look the same in the roles. 
and the character changes inwardly. But I like outward changes, too. I really like to have the right hair, the right glasses, the right dress, the right top to bottom. You know, I like to disappear in the roles if I can. And, you know, the older I get, I think the more I reveal myself, the more I'm willing to reveal. I think it's very brave for people who are so visible. I, I liked hiding. But now I'm getting so, I'm playing parts that are a little bit closer to me, but maybe because I'm old enough to play the roles I was always doing anyway. <laughs> I'm finally the right age. <laughs> I so finally you, got old enough. <laughs> you're very conscious about wardrobe and props and, yeah. and being comfortable with those Very, things. very, very much so. And even for an audition, I never go in full costume, although I take it back. Maximum Bob, the series I did, this Elmore Leonard series I did, it was the Swamp Woman, Inez Crow. It's the Crow family that Elmore wrote about, also in Justified and in some of his other books. And she's a backwoods swamp woman. And there was no way to go in and just audition for her. I had to go the I mean, distance. It's so specific. You have I had to, to do it. Yeah. I had to do the hair. I had to do the thick glasses. I had to do the dress. I had did everything. And I was scared I was going too far because I don't want people to think I'm some amateur that's just dressing up like a clown. So I kept thinking, keep it real, keep it real. And on the way there, I stopped and I got gas. And I said, let me see how people treat me. If they're laughing and saying, oh, you're going in on something? But they didn't. Everybody was just very respectful. And then I walked down Sunset Strip looking like that. And people were like avoiding my glaze. I said, I'm okay. (laughs) They're not uh, my glaze, my gaze. Um, Because they're not looking at it as a goof. They're looking at it like you are that person. Yeah, like here comes a weird lady. So that's okay. And so sure enough, I got that part. And so occasionally I go pretty far with the test but generally what I try to do is just indicate the character as best I can but I try to get the hair right you know that helps me a lot glasses or not um you know wear an outfit that's sort of what they would wear it may not be the actual costume idea but something along those lines just to indicate it like I would never wear a nurse's outfit but maybe something that feels like a nurse you know are you ever thinking about like movement or sort of how you how you function how they would walk sure absolutely around the space absolutely it usually comes pretty naturally to me for some reason uh, I know with Inez Crow, she's such a good extreme example, but I started doing this rocking thing, and maybe I was stealing it from Dustin Hoffman a little bit now that we're talking about those <laughs> oh, two back-to-back. Yeah. But it's a common thing with uh, emotionally insecure people, and I do it myself. I see my husband do it. My daughter does it. So it's not that extreme, but I just let her rock a little bit, and it just came naturally. I didn't plan it. I just started doing it. And, um, yeah, the, certain shoes, depending on what shoes I wear, then you're going to walk differently in every pair of shoes. Whatever costume you put on, you're going to move differently. And I have a checklist. I have a technique that my teacher taught me that's sort of a culmination. It's mostly based on method. It comes. He studied with Strasburg at the studio and Kazan and, so, and Stella Adler. So it mostly comes from, you know, the group theater, Stanislavski technique. Um, but it's his. It's a sort of lowest common denominator of all those techniques. And it's just, you know, what is the prior event of the scene? What's the actual event? What's actually happening in the scene? What's the evaluation? How is it life or death? Or is it casual? Uh, is it personal? What what did what happened to me in my life that made me feel this way? Whatever it is. And it can be events that have nothing to do, like what happened in my life can be not getting invited to Mary yeah. Lou Plowden's birthday party, and whereas somebody just lost her husband in the movie, 
But for me, that was so devastating that all I had to do was think of that. And it can get you to that moment with the script. Absolutely. Yeah. It's right there. Yeah, it just opens up my heart, opens up my chest to remember those things. And colors uh, bring up certain memories and uh, physical action and physical state. Is it hot? Is it cold? Does she have a headache? You know, does her neck hurt? Uh, how much sleep has she gotten? You know, all yeah. those kinds of physical things help a lot. Yeah. Is it difficult on a movie where, you know, sometimes you're just showing up, it's like the first time you're meeting yeah. all of these actors and all of the crew, and now you have to do either a you know, very emotional scene or a very vulnerable scene? Uh, how have you adjusted to sort of getting comfortable in that, where you're well, just you, sort of thrown in? I mean, you have to do your homework. Sometimes yeah. it comes so naturally at this stage of the game that happily I don't have to do as much work as I used to. But not always. Sometimes I still have to work just as hard. But I check my... T I do... You know, I read the script over and over and over again. And as I'm learning the lines, I'm imagining... I use my imagination a lot to try to see the scene. And you can't know what the other person's going to give you. So there's always this big variable. But that keeps you vulnerable. And I try it a lot of different ways. I'll try it angry, sad, sexy, scared... You know, all these different techniques. And then at the end of the day, when I get on the set, I sort of let all that go and try to be in the moment and respond naturally yeah. to the director's direction and to the, what the actor's giving me and the blocking. And now at my age, I've gotten so I do trust my instrument. So it's, it's a much more pleasant process now. Uh, learning to act has taken me forever, and I'm still learning. But at least now I, I sort of trust my instrument, that my instrument will be there for me and guide me. And I think that's the big task of the actor, is to learn to trust and to relax and yeah. let the instincts happen, you know. And to not be selfish and thinking about yourself. You know, I have a prayer that I do. I say, please divorce my mind from self-pity. Don't start feeling sorry for yourself because your trailer's not that big or they didn't call you on time or Whatever it is, there's a big star getting all this attention and you're not getting it. And ah, Don't they know who I think I am? Whatever. Ego stuff. And divorce my mind from uh, self-seeking. It's not about me. And I don't care how big the part is. It's about the higher good. It's about the story. It's about the play. It's about the movie. It's about the higher good of the piece. And so how do I serve the play? How do I serve the work? How do I serve the director's vision? How do I serve my leading lady or leading actor? Uh, what do I do for them to make their... And sometimes serving them is getting the hell out of their way because they don't have time to even let you be nice to them because they've got their work to do and their responsibility and they're carrying the pictures. So you have to kind of suss out, well, what's the lay of the land? And... How do I fit in? How can I best be of service? Is that why it's, it's sort of important for you to prepare in advance so when you're there, so if the director doesn't really have time to speak to you or give you a lot yeah. of notes, you, you can better go direct in there your... and take care of yourself in a way. My teacher was big on that. Michelle Pfeiffer also studied with him, and when she did her interview at the Actors Studio, she talked about that, that he had taught her how to direct herself, especially in film. I mean, television, you, I mean, in, um, well, some TV you get rehearsals, sitcoms. <laughs> But um, almost everything else in television and film, you don't get that much rehearsal. You just sort of run over the blocking. And sometimes you don't even get to create your own blocking. You know, they say, stand there, do move this, pick up that. They even give you the prop they want you to use. And every once in a while, you can kind of change it if it's not right. But frequently, you have to wrap your head around whatever it is they give you. Um, yeah, so you have to learn to direct yourself and have your goals and the things that you want to accomplish and find a way. I, I call it pushing your flowers up through the cracks. Mm -hmm. You're going to be given a, a set of limitations, like a 
screen and you just sort of push your intentions up through the screen. And uh, it's wonderful. It's collaboration. I mean, yeah. it's beautiful. And then I try to not be dishonest. I always try to keep it honest and real and simple and just breathe through it and breathe before the scene. And I know I had a very big scene on my television show last year with Mindy Kaling, and I was so honored to have the scene because it was an important scene for her. It was when she was trying to decide which of two guys to go with. And I'm the least likely person to give her advice because I'm this wacky, crazy <laughs> nurse that's broken her nose and sued her and they just have me on staff because they're stuck with me and I'm, I've been to jail. I mean, I'm a terrible person. And I think that was sort of the fun of it was this unlikely person gives her this advice, which is just to be true to yourself and wait till the right person comes along. And so anyway, I wanted so much to be of service to her because I knew it was important for the development and the arc of her character. And man, was I ready. I knew those lines inside and out. I'd done all my homework. I'd gone through my checklist. And then in the moment, I just let it all go and let the director direct me and responded to her and looked at her and played. Yeah. Just had a good time. But if I haven't done all my homework, I may not be as uh, comfortable or secure. There are times, though, I like mumblecore, too, though. I mean, I like improv. I did a series Francis Fisher and I developed, which... Um, we would just get together and shoot for two hours, and it was wacky, and it was freeing and wonderful. And we had bullet points. We had, you know, a certain story we were trying to tell and characters. So like an arc to the scene. Yeah, but yeah. we didn't know what we were going to do within that, and it was fabulous. So I like it all. I mean, there's no time I'm creating that I'm unhappy, really. Yeah. I don't like being stifled and suppressed and yelled at and <laughs> all that stuff, but they don't, people don't do that to me anymore. I mean, I, I think people are really, really nice to me. Yeah. I seem to get a lot of freedom and a lot of trust. And I remember the first time a director really trusted me, it was Joel Schumacher on A Time to Kill. And I was so used to sort of being a potted plant, which was fine. I was glad to be working, don't get me wrong. But that's not, it's not even really the first time. It's the first time I was aware of it. Because Barry gave me a lot of freedom in Rain Man, too. I mean, always people have, but I didn't realize it until um, George Schumacher walked by me. And he said, uh, uh, nah, never mind. I'm not going to tell you anything. I said, what? What? Give me direction. He said, no, no, I don't want to tell you anything. And I thought, holy smokes, George Schumacher trusts me that much? He's nuts. <laughs> but... Um, Looking back now in this moment, this very second, I'm saying, I think people always gave me a lot of freedom. I, I didn't give myself freedom. I was my worst enemy in terms of trying to be a perfectionist and control it and do it a certain way. Do you think there's anything a director can say to you that can sort of throw you out of the moment or maybe if they over, like if they over talk a scene? Yeah, over talking or, is, yeah. but I've learned I can even deal with that. I just say thank you and listen and try to let it pass through me and grab any little jewel that comes by, you know. Uh, but yeah, that is that is the thing that I've heard other actors discuss too. That first of all, we don't usually need to know the story because we've read the script and we know the story. And a lot of times, people think that telling the story is is directing, and it's not really. It's uh, you know, like I tell you a funny story about um, Orson Welles was directed by Henry Jaglum, and at one point he held four fingers up in the air, and Henry said, "What?" And he said. Slower, faster, softer, <laughs> louder. That's all he wanted, direction. He didn't want to hear anything else. I like a little more than that, and I certainly like 
uh, help with, uh, I don't always know what the frame is, and there's not time. There used to be in the old days, there was more time to really know your frame, but now that we're working on digital, it's all so fast. Well, especially with multiple cameras, too. Multiple so cameras. You just don't know what the shot is, so I appreciate all help in knowing, you know, lean this way, move a little bit over here, you're really tight, whatever that, all the technical help I love. and. I rely on camera operators a lot for that information, you know. And if I can make a camera operator respond either with tears or laughter, I know I'm in good <laughs> shape because they are the ones that really see it. And um, so, you know, we rely on each other very much. But yeah, I think that's the over talking. I I don't know. I always now I feel like I can do yes and you know, like Tina Fey yeah. says, it's not only a great improv lesson it's a lesson for life and it's certainly a lesson for acting that you take what they give you and you pick out those things that make the most sense to you and don't try to do it all because you can't and just try to hear the music of what they're saying because usually there's something they want and maybe they can't express it quite right but there's music in what they're saying and if you can hear the music you can deliver yeah, no, it's funny. Sometimes, you know, directors can say so much and really, all they really want to say is faster, louder, slower. Yeah, <laughs> but they just feel like, I had a thing recently with these two first, uh, it was their first feature and such great guys and they were so prepared and we rehearsed beforehand and I just loved them to death. And But on the day, it was going really well. Everything was just clicking along yeah. and they would, you'd be very happy, but they were afraid that they were so happy. And they would say, well... Uh, should we do it again? And I said, like, you got it. Let's go. You know, and they were very cute because they, they just couldn't believe it was happening so well. They had been so prepared. We were all so prepared. We all loved each other. We loved the material. Yeah. Let's just keep moving. Uh, so I thought that was very sweet. And I thought with time, they'll get that. Oh, yeah, I got it. Yeah, they'll trust that they've got it. And, yeah. yeah. I think some people say like the casting is the direction. Like if you pick somebody for a role. That's saying 95%. I've heard it said 95%. I don't know yeah. if that's quite true with film, but it's a lot for sure. That's a lot. It's just picking the right person. Hmm. I was curious too. I remember the first movie I saw you in as a, as a child was Speed. Oh, was a yeah. woman on that bus and you were the first, you jumped out of the bus. Poor Helen. <laughs> she got her own song, though. <laughs> Helen's song. <laughs> Being like in a, in a scene like that, which is like so emotionally intense, this big action movie, uh, you know, were, were you like on like a moving bus at that time? Yeah, that it was something. I, I almost uh, walked off the movie when I realized we were going to be on a moving bus. I had a baby. My daughter was just about nine months old, and... I was so dumb. I thought they would do CGI. It didn't occur to me we were going to be shooting yeah, on a live today freeway. They would have done it like on a soundstage. Mate, well, yeah. that's what I thought then. You know, yeah. I thought there'd be some exteriors, and then most of it would be on a soundstage. And then we went to rehearse. It was the Friday before Labor Day, and we had a costume parade and a table read. And then we went to the location, and I went, "Wait a minute." We're shooting on a live freeway. <laughs> it was the it, the one at, what's it? I've forgotten the number of it now, but it's, um, shoot, it's over near the airport. But anyway, it hadn't quite opened, but there were construction workers. And oh, like that Imperial super, Highway. Imperial Highway, yeah, yeah. that's where we yeah. shot. But it was a live freeway. It just wasn't open to all traffic. And I said, where are trailers going to be? And they said, oh, they'll be a couple miles away. And I went, oh, my God, I can't bring my baby. 
because I'd never, I was still breastfeeding and I was very uh, attached to my daughter. I had no intention of doing a movie for eight weeks that she wouldn't be able to come to the set. I was devastated and I thought, I can't do it. And then the script had changed. Uh, they had, Graham Yost wrote the original script and the studio had brought uh, uh Joss Whedon in to do a rewrite. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, he doesn't have a credit for it, which uh. I think still gets under his crop. <laughs> but it's Graham's script. It's Graham's script. But Joss did come in, and basically what they had him do was take every all the character stuff away. Like, we had all these stories. We had, um, I was, um, I had just gotten engaged. Uh, Sandy's character was a stand-up comic. I had been to see her show the night before. I had a dog on the bus. I was a hero. So it was almost like the people on the bus, like this was their routine. They get on this bus every day and they knew right. each other in a sense. They all knew each other. Yeah. That's exactly right. And so it was sort of like a Poseidon adventure or something like that. And then we get to the script and I look at it and I said, where's my part? It's like I'm an extra. And I went to Jan, I said, listen, I gotta say, you know, I have a baby, I'm breastfeeding, she can't come on the set, and my part's gone. I don't know why I'm here. And of course, it was Friday, we started shooting on Tuesday, and he said, I promise you, we are gonna cover you, it's gonna be like a European film, and you will not regret having done this movie, trust me. And I had worked with Jan before in a movie called Flatliners that Joel Schumacher directed. And so, I trust yeah, you. Yeah, he started as a DP and mm -hmm. then he transitioned into yeah. directing. And yeah. Flatliners, if you look at it, is beautiful. And I especially had loved the way he had shot my scene with Julia Roberts. He had this whole ethereal, I had been dead and come back to life. And I looked like an angel. I mean, a character angel, but still it was, there was a, a certain look to that scene. And I loved him and I appreciated it. And there'd been another time that I'd had to turn, oh yeah, I had to choose between speed and what was Joel Schumacher directing it? Did Joel Schumacher direct The Firm? It was one of the... Uh, Sidney Pollack. Uh, so it wasn't... But the, it was a John Grisham. It was a, Gron, a John Grisham one. Uh, that oh, I, uh, The, that the Holly, Client? Was that yeah, it? The Client. That's uh, what it was. Yeah. So he had offered me The Client, and I had to choose between Speed and The Client. And uh, I had taken speed because it was more work. It was a longer period. I think the client was only a couple weeks and on location. And I thought, oh, I'll be in L.A. I'll be able to be with my baby. And it was two months' work. And uh, I tried to get them to work it out. I said, you guys, you're <laughs> friends. Work it out. But they couldn't work it out. So I ended up doing speed instead. But anyway, I trusted. I trusted Jan because I'd already turned down the client yeah. and I wanted to do the movie. <laughs> And then also because of Sandra Bullock, because she and I had gone to the same college, and I was very jealous of her because she was younger than me and she was having all this great success. That was her first big movie, I think, Speed, or one of the first. Well, she had done uh, Wrestling Ernest Hemingway yeah. uh, with Robert Altman, not bad, and um, she had just done Demolition Man, which was a big lead for a girl uh, back then, you know, female lead with Sly Stallone. Yeah. And she'd come in, somebody hadn't worked out, she'd come in at the last minute and kind of, Sly said, save the movie because they were in trouble and she just made everything wonderful and very good in the movie. And so we didn't know who the girl was going to be. And I actually had been rooting for my friend Jennifer Grey because I had thought that she would, because it was a stand-up comic. And I thought, oh man, Jennifer would be great as a stand-up comic. And so I had sort of put her name into the powers that be. And uh, Sandy was in. And I said, oh my God, it's that girl from East Carolina. Oh, and I was jealous of her. But it took about five seconds for me to fall in love with her. I mean, she turned around and looked at me and she went, <gasps> like she knew who I was too, even though we'd never met. And she came over and we started making fun of our 
teachers from college, and I've been in love with her ever since. I mean, I just fell in love with her. She was so magical, and I knew she was going to be a huge star, but that wasn't why I loved her. I just loved her because she is love. Yeah. She's just a total spiritual being, and um, I, she's, So know. I think why she's had such a successful career is because, you know, you empathize with her on screen. You know, there's a, you feel her her generosity in a way. That she really reveals her soul. That's one of the, it's an expression we use around here because I did a play once and I had my husband come uh, see the dress rehearsal and he said, oh, it's all there, it's great, but you just have to reveal your soul. And I was like, oh, for what, what kind of crummy direction is that? What are you talking about, reveal your soul? But then the next night on stage, I found myself thinking about what is he talking about? And I talked to some other people from my class and they said, well, think about it. Be open to that. What does that mean? And I was standing on stage and I just felt this tiny move in my chest. Like I just sort of opened my heart and let myself be visible. And I think that's what Sandy does so beautifully. She just is available and vulnerable and lets herself be seen. Yeah. And it's beautiful to see and I've learned a lot from her. She studied Meisner technique and, um, you know, she's great. She's very present in the moment. Yeah. I was wondering if you could talk a little about uh, working on the Mindy Project because sure. I know that was like a big transition for you on a huge uh, network TV show, yeah. series regular. Yeah. Uh, were you looking forward to stepping into something like that? Because it was. I actually wasn't. From, it's the uh, funny. I had done a couple of series that had not been hits, and yeah. uh, I loved doing them. But I felt that my trajectory was going to just be doing movies. I'd, every once in a while, I'd do a big studio movie, and then I'd do a whole bunch of independents. Big studio movie independents and guest star stuff occasionally. And I was very happy and very content. And um, then I had a very good year. The artist had come out and won all those Oscars and done very well. And Harvey Weinstein had included me a lot in the press. And so I'd been out and been visible in a sort of major way. And suddenly I started getting all these offers and it was, I had 11 jobs that year, which for a character actress is a lot of work. And one of the offers was uh, for Mindy Project to do this guest star. I did the, I had to audition. I shouldn't say it was an offer. I had to audition. It was the only one I had to audition out of the 11. The only one I had to audition for was Mindy Project. But um, I loved her. I had noticed her on The Office. I didn't watch it regularly, but when I did, I would say, who is she? She's funny. Just so yeah. real. You, you were know? on The Office. After, yeah. Was that after she had left? or was that? No, she was there, but there. my scene wasn't with her. I was in a, a special scene that took place at his um, condo. Ah. So it was just a few of the people from The Office. It wasn't everybody. And I, did, I didn't work in The Office. Yeah. I, just, I was Dwight's date slash former babysitter. And just this weird chick from, you know, the, the um, uh, not raspberries, what is it that he... Oh, the, uh, the beet farm. Beet was farm. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was from the beet farm. I was his babysitter from the beet farm. And uh, I was eating beets. I brought beets and I was eating beets. So it was a really kooky, demented uh, episode. But yeah, I didn't meet her. And then I did another episode that same year, actually, one of the last episodes, Junior Executive, when he was leaving and he was going to replace, and he brought in all his weird friends to interview for the job yeah. as Junior Executive. And so I, I did a couple of episodes, but I didn't know Mindy. She didn't really know me. And um, so my agent called and he said that uh, Greg Daniels had this new show, Mindy Project, with that. And I said, oh, I love her. And then my manager at the time said, oh, it was the best pilot I saw all season. And I was like, oh, wow. 
And uh, I said, but I have to audition for Greg because I've already I've done the office. I did King of the Hill, and I didn't have to audition for either of those. And I said, are you sure? And then my agent called back and said, no, Greg has nothing to do with it. And I said, okay, well, Mindy doesn't know me. I'll audition. But I, I probably had a little ego on it, you know, like, oh, she doesn't know who I am. And then uh, I got there, and it was, you know, the casting director didn't know me so long. And then I get in there to the audition, and she says, I think you need a prop. I'm going to give you a prop. And I thought, a prop? I mean, here I've this, been around forever. I'm 102. I never in my career had anyone ever said, i got to give you a prop at an audition. So I got another little chip on my shoulder. And she hands me this bowl of almonds. And I thought, okay, fine. You want me to use a prop? I'll use a prop. I started eating the almonds during the scene, and I threw them up in the air and caught them in my mouth and kept on going. It was a miracle. I mean, how I caught them, I'll never know. <laughs> but it was, I think, that's what did it, was the combination of a little bit of ego involved, which is Beverly. It's the character, you know. The two chips on my shoulder, the fact that I had to audition and then being given a prop, probably is why I got the job. So you never know what's going to be the thing. And you ran with it. You know, you gave it to you. Oh, it was just such a great experience. I fell completely in love with Mindy Kaling. I saw her genius. I thought, oh, my God, I just want to support her voice because she's sort of what we feminists in the 60s and 70s were dreaming of a woman with autonomy you know who writes and directs and produces and stars in her own stuff and is a fashion icon and a blogger and a tweeter and I mean she does it all and so I did determine that I wanted to work with her again and I hoped that they would bring me back to recur. I had thought that I was going to be doing a show called Mockingbird Lane that Brian Fuller had created. That was like the Munsters, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I was Eddie uh, Izzard's side... I was to be, eventually, over time, his minion and sidekick. Yeah. He was going to bite me, and I was going to become his angel of death, and had Brian had this whole great plan for me, and I had done the pilot, and I thought, well, I'll be doing that, but it's on the same lot, so maybe I can occasionally go and do a Mindy project, because I love her so much. So I came home from uh, work, and I Emmy Magazine had come, and she was on the cover. And I said, oh, this is interesting. I'm going to make a vision board, because my friend Octavia Spencer had made a vision board a couple of years before, and every single thing had come true, and she told me I should do it, and I was like, I don't know if I should do it. I'm scared to wish for anything. You know, I don't know if I know what's best for me. But I thought, I want to support her voice. So I, I took the cover of Emmy Magazine, pasted it on a piece of cardboard. My husband gave me a great big piece of cardboard, put it behind my china cabinet. And I forgot about it. I literally forgot about it. I didn't think about it anymore. And then they called me to do one episode, and then I ended up getting cut out of the episode because they changed the script. And then they called me to do another episode. And I thought, oh, that's great. Meanwhile, Mockingbird Lane does not get picked up, and I'm doing, I did a Justified, and I think I had done a movie for James Franco, As I Lay Dying, I did uh, Addie Bundren in that, and I've forgotten what else, but I was having a little job here, a little yeah. job there, and they, one day I come home, and I've got all these messages, I think, what's going on? And my agent said, they want you to be a regular. So I had literally done one guest star, and they asked me to be a regular. Wow. Never happens, ever in the history of the world. <laughs> and I didn't even know how to accept it. I was like so stunned and it hadn't been in my plan at all. I just thought I would, you know, continue living my life the way I was. Just sort of doing yeah. mostly independent movies, occasionally a studio picture, occasionally a guest star. And suddenly my whole world changed. And then uh, it became a hit. And so we're now 
uh, we've finished. We're our fifth season is airing now on Hulu. We have uh, four more episodes to air, and that'll be the end of the fifth. And I think um, quite likely we'll be picked yeah. up for a sixth year. That's incredible, just from a guest star from a spot. Guest star. You'd never think series regular. That's but you just shined in that role, and they just thought, you know. God bless them. Yeah. God bless them for writing the, the role. I remember the beginning of uh, Mindy Project. It was sort of like they were kind of transitioning. Like the first few episodes had certain characters, and they kind of moved people away. And yeah. After the first thirteen, uh, that's when I came in. Yeah. I came in after the first thirteen, and uh, I think a couple people left. Uh, Stephen Tobolowsky left, and a couple of other people. Three people left, and I came in, and then she started doing this thing that she does now, which is such a great formula, and sort of like Larry David, I guess, that she has a lot of high-profile guest stars. Yeah. And then there's a little team of regulars, and then all these high-profile guest stars. And then she'll have them come in and do an arc, like Adam Pally. They'll do an arc. And then they'll come and occasionally guest star. So they're not regulars, but they're familiar, and they're part of our world. And then she gets so many people that she normally wouldn't get. Yeah, I remember she had like the Duplass brothers and yeah. James Franco was on yeah. there at one point. And yeah, Seth Rogen and yeah. oh my gosh, so many great, great guest stars. So it's it's been pretty wonderful. Greta Gerwig did yeah. one and it's been pretty cool. What do you think makes uh, Mindy Kaling, as you were mentioned before, like so unique and so special that um, you know the I show honesty, really pops? I think her honesty yeah. and her awareness, and she's a writer first and foremost. She's brilliant. She has a brilliant mind. Her parents were both doctors, and she's um, you know first generation. Her parents were immigrants and came here, and uh, she was raised in the Boston area. And she's just super smart. Went to Dartmouth. She was editor of the Dartmouth, one of the Dartmouth papers, and just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. And then she wrote a play that she acted in in New York for the Fringe Festival, and she was seen. And I think Greg Daniels saw her, yeah. and she was offered a pilot, and she came out here, and the pilot didn't go, and then Greg offered her the job on um, the office. So she was a writer first and foremost, and then became a producer, and then he also had her on the show to act. So she really, you know. Yeah. Paid her dues and learned how to do all of it through Greg. And um, man, did she learn how. And the whole fashion icon just came from her. Her mother was apparently a really great dresser and taught her a lot about style and color. And uh, so she's, because she, she's changed the way I dress. I mean, I'm a, as I said, I'm sort of a upscale hippie, let's say. I like to wear jeans and t-shirts or, you know, cotton shirts and... Uh, but she's taught me not to be afraid of color and to th that design. I always thought it was too highfalutin for me, all this designer stuff. But <laughs> now I realize it's art. Yeah. And it doesn't mean you have to have the most expensive dress in the world. You just really figure out who are you on this night. What is the event and what do you want to say about yourself that night? And then you put it together and it's like creating art. So now I really enjoy getting ready for these events and I like finding I like finding deals. I don't like having a stylist and having them bring stuff to the house. I would rather be my own creative, you know, have my own creative process and I like going to all the I have some secret boutiques that I go to that get designer stuff from Denmark and I try to find interesting things that are like my character like uh, in the show whatever it is if I'm promoting Mindy that's different Beverly I don't dress like Beverly <laughs> but I try to find their personality and and my personality yeah. and then the fun of the night whatever the n fun of the night is you know like the night of our hundredth episode party I wanted something that really felt like 
a painting, like an art painting, because here we had created this work of art together, 100 episodes, so I wanted to feel like a work of art, like a painting. I guess yeah. I'm sort of being redundant here, but I remember looking and looking at it, and right at Macy's, I found this DKNY. It's nothing that expensive, but it looked like a modernistic painting, it's sort of a... I can't think of a painter that it reminded me of, but just a splash of color and black and white, but then a little splash of red. And I thought, yeah, that's what we've done. We've created this work of yeah, art. So rare to get to 100 episodes. So Definitely rare. worth celebrating. Especially these days. <laughs> I mean, you know, in the old days it was rare enough, but now there's so much competition and there's so many shows that to make it to 100 is a miracle. And it's all Mindy. I mean, she just, March, she is our... You know, fearless leader, carrying the torch, getting it done, doing whatever's necessary to make it work. Bringing in those guest stars, calling her friends. You see her at a party. If you're a star, you're probably going to be invited to be on the show. <laughs> and now she's got uh, three movies. You know, yeah. she's in Ocean's Age, uh, Wrinkle in Time. And then she's written a script that she wrote for Emma Thompson. And she's going to really? co-star with Emma Thompson in right. the Universal's doing. So... Pretty cool. Yeah. Another person who you've worked with quite a bit is James Franco. Yes. I'm looking on your IMDb, there must be like a dozen uh, yeah. projects. And I'll, I, in fact, <laughs> I haven't worked for him for a while. I miss him. <laughs> I'm like, I was supposed to do something in New York, and I think the part got written out. So, yeah, I really miss him. I was in touch with him the other day. What's, and, uh, what sparked that collaboration at first, that he invited you so many times? Well, we to... just, I mean, we had an audition together uh, many years ago, before he was a star, he was doing, uh, Nick Cage was doing a movie, and Brenda Blethyn was playing this role, and she was out of the country, and he asked me to come in and audition these two actors, and one of them was James, and in the audition, I mean, he just knocked it out of the park, and I'm going, who the hell is this? <laughs> And I remember at the end of the audition, I looked at Nick, and very inappropriately, I said, he's good. And then I realized that was not appropriate to say, and I said, nice to meet you, see you later. I walked out. <laughs> I thought, well, I hope Nick's not mad at me for putting him on the spot like that. But he did get the part. It was a movie called Sunny. But we really had a moment. I mean, it wasn't like just an audition. We were acting. We did a scene together. And uh, so I rooted for him, and I saw his star starting to rise, and he kept doing more and more work. And uh, sometime after Spider-Man, he came to see a play I was in. Octavia Spencer and I were in a play a little, in a little bitty theater, 85 seats over on Melrose, Trials and Tribulations of a Trailer Trash Housewife. And he came to see it with his girlfriend and his friend and stayed afterwards to talk to us. And he was, you know, talking about the performance is being very generous and kind. And I said, you know, we did meet once before. And he said, we did. And I said, yeah. And I told about that artist. And he said, oh, that was you. And he remembered it. Because, you know, actors, we remember those moments. When we get those moments, that's it. And yeah. um, so then he teases me now. And he says, yeah. And then it was a rocket to stardom for me after that. Because <laughs> I always joke about like and you know I'm responsible for his whole career which is not true at all. You gave him a good word there. But so, I did yeah. uh, but, it, but it was it was thrilling to work with a great actor and I knew he was going to go all the way. I was I can see the audition right now. I can see his audition. I can see him. He cried real tears. It was beautiful. And so um, then I got to be his girlfriend at the time on O'Reilly was friends with a friend of mine and so she mentioned that and we got to be friends and then I had asked James about doing a reading of a play. I had two plays I was thinking about making into a movie. And I said, do you want to do a reading? He said, sure. We did a reading of one. I've always thought I picked the wrong one. I wish we'd picked this other one. I think it was a better fit. But anyway, we read this reading. 
He said, he told me, he said, I don't think it's worth it, don't do it, which was great advice. He saved me a big headache because it was true. I realized later that uh, the writer really didn't want to rewrite it, didn't really want to do the stuff that was necessary. And sometimes that happens, you know, you start developing material with somebody and they get it to a point that it's the way they want it, but doesn't mean you can sell it. Yeah. That I can sell it. They might be able to sell it another way, but I can't. I just had that happen with a writer that I love this project. And he's done several rewrites, but all of the directors that I introduced him to, you know, had further notes, and he just doesn't want to do it anymore. He wants to just sell it, and then whoever's, you know, directing it will give him the notes. And I said, you know, you can still use me attached, but I can't produce it because I can't. I have to have a package to take out, and so maybe he'll come back. I keep hoping that maybe he'll find something. But that situation with James, that was that. And you know how it is. Once you start working with somebody, you sort of fall in love with them, and you get to know each other as artists. And then Anna was in a movie I produced called Herpes Boy, which is, if you haven't seen it, it's really a darling little movie that we made for $50,000. And she stole the show, and we got to be closer and closer. And then she was in a short that I directed, and then I, she met Octavia Spencer through me, and then Octavia got her the audition for The Help, and we were just all growing closer and closer. And then I did a short that he did. He was studying directing. I always thought he should be a director, too. Just the way he would discuss projects, I thought, gosh, he's got such a vision. Yeah. You know? He's really taken off in that way now. I mean, he's directed oh, he's so many directed movies. he's directed so many yeah. things. And um, so anyway, I was very happy that he decided to go to NYU and learn to direct. And I did his short, one of his shorts there. And then he called me one day and asked me to do Addie Bundren in SLA Dying. And one of my favorite books of all time, those are the people I come from. That specific Faulkner accent is the way my ancestors talked. Uh, I remember I grew up hearing that accent like it worked and it worked good and we went down in the field and it's a very specific kind of talking and it's just in my bones, it's in my genetics. So I was so honored to do that role and we shot in Mississippi and we shot the first day was in a hurricane, literally in a hurricane. But they, there were scenes where it was raining in the movie so they just went out and shot them. They just used Yeah, I remember it. that in the movie, it was raining quite a bit. Throughout yeah, that was, that, that was that was a real hurricane. <laughs> Usually have those rain machines. Yeah, there. no rain machines required. <laughs> that was a hurricane. And um, then we got to premiere at Cannes, and what a thrill that was. And it turned out I got to go because we were actually already had a trip planned to Europe. And so I was in London, and so it was very easy for me to get there. And what a magical night that was. They, every, there were so many crowds to see him that we couldn't get through in our cars, and so we had to walk all the way to the red carpet from the hotel. Right. That was the premiere at the Cannes Film Festival, yeah. right? Yeah, and those red stairs, and he was so excited, and uh, they kept telling him, slow down, slow down. But he was just so excited, he kept walking fast, and they'd say, slow down, James, slow down, and then he'd slow down, and then it speed up again. It was thrilling. It was just thrilling. It was one of the great nights of my life. It was a beautiful night. It had been raining all week, but it cleared for James. And you never know how they're going to do it, Can They boo people. And after the lights, you know, came up, it was quiet for a minute, and then boom came the applause. Seven-minute standing ovation. Somebody was timing it. Seven-minute standing ovation. And boy, were we thrilled. Yeah, I can't to get that reaction because they're so aggressive when they like something. they They don't care who you are. They will boo you right off. Sophia Coppola got booed. I mean, they'll boo anybody. 
So we were very, very grateful <laughs> for the can <laughs> audiences. Uh, lastly, I just wanted to talk about Jackie, which is a film that I no. really loved quite a bit. And, Thank you. Know, you. I should have gotten more too. words. I know. I really feel we were sort of, I mean, I just don't understand why people. I, my theory is it's such a strong, powerful woman's movie that it, she really um, stood up to power. Yeah. And that's not quite in vogue yet for a woman to do that. Not quite. We're getting there, but not quite. When you think about all the films in contention, we were the only one that was really a strong, powerful woman standing up and doing what needed to be done. I mean, I was 14 years old when that happened, and we needed that funeral. We needed that ritual, that tradition. We needed to see the leaders of the world walking behind that casket. The world was mourning over him. We were mourning, and we need, you know, that's why we, as human beings, have developed ritual and tradition. You know, because we, that's why people still go to church, because you need a way to grieve, you need a way to feel, you need a way to celebrate, to have the joy of being a human being and the sadness of being a human being. And I had never realized that Jackie Kennedy is a feminist hero. I mean, I knew she was a great woman, I admired her, I knew she was smart, I knew she'd been a photographer and an editor, but I didn't know the courage she had. And I had never thought of her as a widow. Isn't that weird? I'd never really thought of... She was in that car. Her husband died in her arms, you know. That's something that doesn't leave you for the rest of your life. That Forever. And yeah, she's trying to put his brains back in his head. The graphic violence of that. And that she made a choice to keep that suit on. Because she wanted people to see. What a brave choice for her to do that. To say, no, I want people to see what this is, what violence is. And that transition of her having to pack up and move out of the White House and John John's birthday and all of that in that first week. Amazing woman. Yeah. So I hadn't gotten it. And I thought, you know, Natalie's performance was so brave. Seeing her so... on the set, you know, as you compare, like seeing Dustin Hoffman be so much in character, was Natalie yeah. Portman that way? Well, she sense. wasn't when she wasn't shooting, yeah. um, you know, because that was such a specific voice and a, a specific posture and a specific walk that uh, she's very down-to-earth girl, and no, in between takes and stuff, no. But boy, yeah, once that camera starts rolling, total transformation. And we did a lot of improv and interesting blocking and moving around. He gave us a lot of freedom. The, we were so much steady cam and the, uh, the uh, cinematographer shot most of it, and he was right with her, and he was part of us. He was like yeah. a character. It's very subjective. You feel like you're seeing everything from her point of view. Yeah, the very. That's exactly what I kept. People yeah. would ask me about, it and I said, "Well, I'll tell you this: it's subjective. It's not an objective thing." Piece. For instance, when we would do a scene, let's say on an Air Force One, we would do it in one location. The next take, we'd move to a different location. We didn't just do it over and over again with masters and coverage. And so 30% of that film is first takes. Mm. And that's very unusual technique. I mean, I've been in a lot of movies. I've done a lot of work. I've never done that so before. So he knew how he wanted to edit. He wasn't sure. He, he wasn't sure. Uh, he just wanted to shake it up. And he wanted us to be spontaneous. And he wanted us to improvise. And, I mean, he had her moving all over that plane. One improv that he didn't use, but she came over and she said, you want a drink? I said, you got bourbon? You know? <laughs> Which, can you imagine that scene in the movie? But we had such freedom to do all of that. And, uh, yeah, she's amazing. So once that camera was rolling, just total magical transformation. Really beautiful. I adore her. Another funny story. It was so hot on that 
playing because we had so many extras on there. And I kept having to get off, and I was really afraid I would faint. I thought, oh, my God, I can't faint. The old lady faints and slows down production when, you know, you're doing a low-budget movie, basically. This was not a big-budget film. And conversely, Natalie has a big piece of cardboard, and she's fanning the extras. So what a great actor. What a... I mean, she's a character actress. Yeah. You know, roll up your sleeves, get to she's work. She's not just looking out for herself, she's Mm-mm. looking out for everybody. She's a worker there. among workers. And boy, I'd work with her anytime, any day. I love her. I'm going to miss her. I'm going to miss this. I've enjoyed so much doing all the publicity for the movie because we've gotten to be together and do Q's and A's and do luncheons and this and that and the other. And it's been a wonderful, wonderful ride. I love these people. I, at the Spirit Awards, I told Pablo goodbye. I thought that would probably be the last time I saw him and I got a, a selfie or somebody took a pic, not a selfie, but somebody took a picture of his brother Juan, the producer, and him. And then I went to hug him goodbye and I just got tears in my eyes. I couldn't help it. And I just, I had to walk away. I mean, I was so emotional. And I fortunately had a my grandmother's uh, handkerchief in my pocketbook for good luck. <laughs> and uh, so I was able to dab my eyes, but I was quite moved to say goodbye. Yeah. And I still, like, right now. now. I think as time goes by, that movie's going to I know, think so get too. more appreciated because I, it's, it's not a conventional right. biography of someone. You know, it's not a cradle of grave type movie. Or, it's an art film. Yeah. It's like Donnie Darko. You know, there's certain films that I've done in my life that I know are just plain an art film. That's just no other word for it. And it takes time sometimes for those films to get around. Casablanca wasn't a hit. I mean, it's the Brattle Theater in in, in uh, Harvard Square that made that movie a hit. It yeah. came out. It went away, even with that great cast. And then the Brattle Theater liked it. Some of the guy, the Brattles said, "Oh, this is good. Let's play this." So they started playing it. The audience started building and yeah. classic. And I have a friend, Alan Howard, who's a writer, very brilliant guy, and he said he thinks that her performance is going to go down as one of the great performances of the ages. And he named a bunch of things like Marilyn Monroe and Bus Stop and Greta Garbo and this and uh, 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 Betty Davis and all about Eve. He said he believes that eventually it will go down as one of the great female performances yeah, of all time. Every, I mean, the, the voice, she got the voice, the movement of the character, just emotionally. I mean, you feel like you're in her skin in a way when you're watching it. It's really and it's varied. Powerful. It's not one note. I yeah. mean, she's she brought, because Jackie had a certain voice that she used when she was presenting herself to the public, and then she has those anger yeah. scenes. You where see she, that in the, uh, the, the TV spots that she does, and then when you see her, you know, mourning and see her behind closed doors, totally very different. Very different thing. Yeah. yeah. So I think so, and I hope that for that film. It's, I'm very, very proud of it. If I never do anything else in my life, it's a great way to say good. Not that I'm going off to Louisiana next week to do a movie, so I, I will hope, hopefully continue to work till the day I die, but uh, it certainly is a highlight for me, one of the mm. things I'm the most proud of, for sure.